Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for episode four of Mindset Lab. In, in all my experience in sports um, and realizing these conversations these past couple of weeks, I've realized um, how much talking about abuse in sport actually weighs on me. It's, it's, it's been a challenge to, to be a part of the conversations and listening in the conversations. And for myself and my own experience, I've had negative and positive experiences, but I've been lucky enough not to be um, involved personally on a personal level. And I've kind of been sheltered in that way. So uh, being a part of those conversations, I've realized has kind of affected every, every area of my life. And um, I'm realizing that. So we've offered some support systems at the start of this episode that is going to be in the pre-recording. And um, that's a really important place to start, I think. And uh, that's also why I'm very happy that we are joined today by um, Dr. Melanie Lang, who is um, going to be focusing on athlete wellness mindset. If you are unaware of Dr. Lang's work, she is here with us today. And she's the assistant director of the Center for Child Protection and Safeguarding in Sport, otherwise known as CPSS, at Edgehill University. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Great. And I think, uh, as per usual, Dr. Jennifer Fraser is here. And I think <laughs> your area of expertise, Jen, is super in line with what we're talking about today as well. Yeah, I think we're going to have an excellent conversation. And I, I also want to echo Jameson's point about this can be a very uh, heavy conversation. When you talk about abuse, it can... It can trigger people, it can weigh down on people, it can make people, especially young people, I think, feel very powerless. So I really like the direction that uh, Jameson is, is charting here. We have, you know, a world leading expert in child protection, but she's also a leading expert in what policies can we do? How can we make change? How do different countries handle it? And um, that type of knowledge is just invaluable for anyone who's feeling overwhelmed there are all kinds of solutions and ways of making change. So I thought maybe we could start off by um, one of the things that I work on and I struggle with is the idea of how do we break the cycle or how do we stop recycling the way a coach might have been trained, which was as an elite athlete, which was really harsh on them, but they believe it's the best way to get success. So maybe Dr. Lang, you could start us off with a conversation around how do we stop the cycle? How can we make positive change and really protect our athletes? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Um, I think perhaps it, we almost need to go back a step and understand why this happens in the first place. And I, I, I think that Certainly the, the recycling uh, of experience. Um, so we know from research that coaches do um, tend to reenact what they themselves experience. So they, that could well be um, abusive uh, practice or, or poor practice. That's certainly one of the reasons that um, particularly emotional forms of emotional and physical abuse occur in sport. And so as well, um, again, if, if you were going to come back to the to not say what I was going to say now or, or repeat it later but um it, I think there are all the, some of the other reasons particularly that um emotional abuse gets under acknowledged in sport is um the the normalization the, the normalized behaviors and, and the fact that you know emotional abuse can be isn't a cut and grey uh, there are grey areas within um, behaviours that, that constitute emotional abuse and so because some of the behaviours that 
are abusive would, would count as abusive are normalized particularly within a sports context um they can go unrecognized so um you know the behaviors like what it takes to succeed in sport particularly at, at an elite performance level but but not only um it, it's tough you know sport is a tough um training is tough to to, to reach an elite level so i think it, it's a it's a, a culture sport where conformity to certain um behavior certain norms and behaviors that, that can be quite damaging is is not only expected but it's also um encouraged it, it, and these behaviors become sort of seen as part of the game they're a normal part of sport um it, it's what it takes to succeed um you have to put up with these behaviors you have to go through um the the, the pain you have to go through the training with injury you have to you know rigidly follow a particular diet the, these sorts of behaviors that can um, constitute a emotional and physical abuse um have become the sort of dominant model for success and so um when when it's rationalized as as a function of sport this is a functional way to behave in sport um it's seen as something that not only leads to um improved performance but is actually necessary for improved performance that's how it's how it's seen so i think part of understanding how we prevent and how we manage when it does happen um these forms of abuse is understanding why it's happening in, in the first place and certainly normalized behaviors that are abusive is is one of the issues i, I think there are um, other issues not only that the recycling uh, of abuse that we know occurs um the assumption that these behaviors are, are necessary to develop mental toughness um which is seen as essential for, for success in sport um and i think there's also uh, stuff going on around how we how we think of how we construct or think about athletes um, and particularly children um i think all all these things together sort of um create this perfect storm of, of emotional abuse in particular um, being so prevalent in sport and it is um, so prevalent it, it, it's all the evidence we have thus far suggests that emotional abuse emotional psychological abuse is um, by far in a way the, the most prevalent form of abuse something like there was a study in England for example that showed that 79% of young people when they were thinking about their experiences when they were children in the sport in the UK had experienced emotional harm. Um, so significant significant numbers are affected. Am I talking too much? No. Not at all. How, should I carry on? <laughs> carry on, carry on. I'll yeah. keep going, okay. Um, so I think... Um, I think we need to start first and foremost by understanding why these things happen in order to work out what we can do to, to prevent and, and equally to manage these issues. So for me, the, it, it's really about, I always say, acknowledge, awareness, educate, empower. Um, so acknowledging is the first step and, and I wish we, we weren't in this position but we are still at the stage where we need to acknowledge we need with it everyone who works within sport needs to acknowledge and accept um that these things happen um and that it's not acceptable unequivocally it's wrong so the first step towards preventing any any welfare concern um is recognition by the sports authorities that a problem exists 
Um, I think it's about acknowledging where it's appropriate um, to that, that an apology to, to athlete victims is necessary um, and have an open discussion about how, how to proceed. And we're only really, certainly in the UK, we're only really starting to do that now when it comes to emotional abuse in sport. Um, we had an epiphany in the mid 1990s around child sexual abuse and um, sexual abuse of an exploitation of children and uh, women athletes, adult athletes. Um, and we, as a result of that, that was a, a, an Olympic swimming coach who I knew. This is how I uh, came to be interested and, and research in this area. Um, in the mid 1990s, the Olympic swimming coach called Paul Hickson was convicted of raping and sexually assaulting uh, female swimmers under his care. And he, at the time, he got the longest sentence for any sexual offence in any sector. Um, and that that created a storm of publicity. Um, as a result of that, there were several other uh, sports, uh, several other athletes in multiple sports in the UK um, and uh, in, uh, and further abroad who came out to talk about their own experiences of sexual exploitation. And that included some male athletes as well. And so I think in the UK, at least, we did an awful lot of soul searching in the mid 1990s about um, hierarchical power relations in sport and how coaches uh, could get away with this kind of behavior for such a long time. Um, Paul Hickson was, um, it was it was found that he'd been carrying out these behaviors for close to 20 years and there'd been multiple complaints about him um, that had been overruled or ignored. So as a result of that, we had um, a, a series of, of significant policies as well as um, sort of more, more public recognition of sport as a sector where abuse can occur. And um, sport and parents and athletes became much more aware of this issue and much more attuned to the issue of sexual abuse. But the same didn't occur with other forms of abuse. And I think really it, this has happened quite recently in the UK again, because we have um, we've had a series of uh, independent reviews in different sports, Paralympic swimming, uh, British cycling, um, tennis, where cases of sexual abuse in some cases, but also of, sort of what what the newspapers have referred to as toxic sports culture. Um, so incidents of, uh, of, of fat shaming, of um, sexual harassment, of um, racial uh, abuse, of uh, I mean, stri strictly speaking, some some behaviours that you, I can only really describe as torture. Um, there, there have been cases of of children as young as ten, as seven, being tied to the parallel bars that they use in gymnastics, um, tied there with their wrists and left to hang there while the coach screamed in their face because they failed to succeed at practicing a particular move. So. As a result of, of with, there's been an awful lot of media coverage in the last five or six months, particularly focused on British 
gymnastics and there is currently an independent review um, going on into British gymnastics looking at specifically at emotional and physical abuse of athletes so suddenly this is an issue that is um, in the public domain again that people are starting to question some of these practices that were quite um, that were common knowledge within uh, within the sport parents were present in many cases while these behaviors were going on um, other coaches were present um, other athletes were present complaints were made and overruled so the similar sort of cycle that happened in the 1990s with sexual abuse is now occurring um, but this time more focused on emotional abuse I think about everything that you're saying right now and there's there's a lot to break down I feel like and and mm-hmm. uh, I think about athletes at least and and I, the, what you're saying about all these coaching techniques that are normalized and and become a part of like standard practice in, in sport and gymnastics in particular like we talked about that with Jennifer say about how there's this total mindset of coaches where you have to break athletes down to their kind of their bare bones and then you build them up from the ground again but that is only mm-hmm. building them up in in one sense of not like there's no really kind of building up beyond sport and I mean you mentioned mm-hmm. empowerment but I'm curious how you approach that conversation with an athlete who either is starting off as a child and is just beginning their experience in sport, or how do you approach that conversation about educating athletes in general? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I again, I, I don't think it's something we can uh, we can do with athletes alone. I think we have to look at the sport family and um, and educate everyone within the sport family. So, um, I mean, part of the issue is that, that athletes are, are by the, by the nature, by the way that sport is set up structurally are disempowered. Um, there, there is this assumption, I think that, um, coaches are, you know, we, we think about, um, athletes as objects, as commodities, as things, things that need to be these kind of empty vessels that need to be um, filled with the coach's knowledge. They have this, um, coaches have an alibi of, of expertise and a, an alibi of, of status. Um, and they, we, we, and we, we think of athletes as knowing nothing and having, waiting to be, to be taught, to be educated by um, the coach and, and, athletes who are thought of as um, commodities, as things, as athletes first and children, if we're thinking about children, second or people second. So I think um, part of the problem is that and and because of that, we can't only educate athletes because they are structurally disempowered within sports culture. So even if they do speak out, because in many cases, certainly in the case of um, sexual abuse uh, uh, when Paul Hickson was convicted in the 1990s and equally in the case of um, of many of the examples of abuse that have been disclosed relating to British gymnastics over the last few months many of these athletes had spoken out previously but were overlooked or um, or overruled so it, there is certainly an issue with educating and certainly I think athletes need to be part of that a central part of that but i think we need to educate the broader sport family so parents um coaches other officials as well um so that that everybody knows what what behaviors constitute emotional abuse and how they can 
report it, um, what how they can raise concerns and how those concerns are handled within the organisation um, so that they're taken seriously and not seen as just a sort of normal part of sport. There was another part to your question and I went off on one of the tangents and forgot it, sorry. That's totally fine, that's totally fine, genuine. I was just going to say, um, I, I love your um, the model you've depicted, this idea that the adult, the educator, and this happens in music, this happens in, in academia, somehow the educator has knowledge that they then pour into the empty vessel. And what I find fascinating or in the work that I do that really um, connects with you here is I'm trying to get educators, coaches or teachers or music teachers, parents to understand that that's a really outdated model. It's very old fashioned. And the science has taught us that really what we're doing when we work with children in whatever field, and very true for sports, when we work with children, what we're doing is we're strengthening desired neural networks and we're replacing neural networks that they don't need and that aren't gonna serve them well in life. So Jameson, this goes to your athlete wellness, athlete welfare, it's all connected. And if we could change educators, coaches understanding that if they want a child to succeed at their sport, they have to help them practice. It's experiential. And every time their brain makes a mistake, it's a celebration. It's not berating and it's not shaming. The mistake is how the brain is learning how to strengthen the neural network. So really this is where I'm trying to just do a paradigm shift around how educators understand their role. And it's empowering for them because the more our coaches understand that they have this incredibly important job, this, this sacred trust basically to be the one that fulfills the potential of, of all their athletes and allows them to have the healthiest brains and bodies. That, that's truly important, inspiring work. So yeah, I, I really, I think that that's where this one of the ways we need to move forward with this. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Dr. Lang. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, it, it, it is an outdated model um but it, it's entrenched within sport um you know sport is uh sport culture is, is hierarchical and we know that within hierarchical cultures whether that's the military the workplace any any other hierarchical culture then um you know abuse is um is more likely to happen so you have athletes who are disempowered by if they're disempowered um perhaps if they're their children um they're, they're structurally disempowered they're disempowered in a different way uh, or an additional way um by their assumed lack of expertise um they're disempowered by often their 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 size comparative to the coach in some cases by um their gender so it, it's yeah it, it is an outdated model but it is a, a model that is entrenched within sport and I think there are many coaches who are doing, you know, a really good job. And we certainly know some of my own research um, some time ago now, but some of my own research suggested that um, newer qualified coaches were more sort of on board with accepting alternative um, models of, of doing alternative ways of, of doing things, alternative coach athlete relationship models. Um, but yeah, we, we've still some way to go, I think, before um, that's true of all coaches across all sports. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think um, with some of what you're saying, it's it's sounding like specifically when it comes to toughness. I've asked a couple of questions about toughness and about this idea that we kind of idolize the end of the road, like the end of competition is like, well, if it's the Olympics, it's it's the gold medal that we all want to get. Like Dr. Walinga called it the the gold medal standard, and and uh, but she also said that there's kind of this part of this conversation where athletes and and coaches are now starting to realize that it's kind of the environment that you build, you build towards that in that really creates the, a better athlete and a better person to go beyond sport. I'm curious when there's something that is like kind of at the end of the road or a competition, or even when there's nothing at the end of the road, when there's nothing to work towards, but it seemed like there is, I'm curious how you, how do you kind of, what are your thoughts on that? On, on like kind of idolizing this at this final stage? Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's difficult because I think there are there are differences obviously at different levels of sport, um, but certainly at the elite level. I mean, I, I was myself an elite athlete. I was an elite swimmer, and there is um, there you know there is a sense that this is what you have to do to get where you want to be, and and I think I think you kind of do make that cost benefit analysis in, in your head and, and there, there's certainly research that suggests with it with elite athletes that suggests that um, they make a cost benefit analysis of what are what am I what's my end game and how close am, am I to achieving that and therefore to what extent am I willing to put up with these behaviors and this this whether they recognize it as abuse or not to what extent am I willing to, to be unhappy in order to get where I want um now at an elite level you I can understand when you've invested so much time energy money um you know uh into it how athletes make that analysis and think it, it's worth it um we, we certainly need to do much much more to explain to them that that isn't the only path and there are alternative ways of, of becoming successful becoming whatever success looks like um that that isn't the only model that, that exists when we're looking at, at lower down the performance hierarchy that i think there is there are different things at play but for and, and this is more likely where athletes leave the sport they drop out of the sport and leave the sport when um the because they, they haven't invested so much in, into it um but in terms of coaches the, the the model is still the same because a coach's career and again status and reputation can still be invested in athletes even if they're not competing at an elite level so i think certainly there's much more we can do to educate coaches um, and athletes and athletes parents on alternative models of success but I think we also need to recognize that these aren't issues that are unique to more of an elite or more of a performance end of the spectrum um, certainly when it comes to emotional abuse that the evidence suggests that you may be more susceptible to emotional abuse the higher up the spectrum you go because of the the investment, the cost benefit analysis that you've made, but that equally these are behaviors, um, these are harms that are happening to athletes across the whole performance spectrum. And often the lower ends of the performance spectrum get forgotten about. 
Um, there isn't there isn't as much attention in, in research and in policy development at, at that end. And yet these are athletes who are still also being harmed. They may just just decide to leave the sport because they haven't invested quite so much in order to, to um, carry on. And that in itself is, you know, that that's a tragedy, isn't it? We, we, we may well be losing athletes, not just from um, from. From this, that particular sport but from all sport or physical activity so there's a lot more riding on this than than yeah winning medals making um making elite teams i think yeah i um in in north america the national alliance of youth sports research shows that seven out of ten kids quit sports at 13 because they can't it's just so unbearable they don't like the way they're being treated. So, mm. I mean, we're losing 70% of potentially Olympic athletes. Like we don't even know because yeah. we don't know how talented they are because we drive them away from the sport. And yet we, we, we as a culture and society and, and as a, a governing body, we understand that health and wellness is deeply interrelated with our sport culture. It's, a, it's really mm. such a shame. I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit. I know you've you've just edited this major volume for Rutledge mm -hmm. on athlete welfare, and the writers that you are working with, the researchers that you work with, they're talking about how important it is to have inclusion and equity and child rights. I mean, these are all words that we wish were buzzwords in sport. Like all coaches, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could if we could train our coaches and our athletes and our parents to all have these kinds of words like what how are we protecting child rights first and then putting the sport second how are we including all children how do we create a power balance between our adults and our kids and i just was wondering if you could talk with us about how these different forces could actually make positive change um the children's rights approach is this that's what you mean there was there was a lot going on there sorry <laughs> yeah child rights let's start there sorry okay. I, I yeah. get going with my questions and then <laughs> that, no it's, it's great i don't know where to start um yeah okay so uh, i mean for, for me that the whole um i think empowerment uh, as a uh, as an ideal is is central to preventing these issues from continuing um we have to give athletes or, or educate athletes on um, to know that they've got, you know, the confidence, the skills and the opportunities to to challenge and um, abusive practices, or at least to question, even if they're not sure um, if, if something that's happening is normal or acceptable um, and to speak out safely. So, you know, athletes can resist. They, we can teach them assertiveness. We can teach them resistant tactics. Um, and we can support them. Um, so I think we we certainly need to do much, much more to, to educate and empower, and that's sort of um, underpinned by by human rights and, and, and children's rights. Um, in the UK, we have changed many of our, our laws around children to include, to incorporate um, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. But children's rights, and, and that operates in many different sectors, um, in the medicine, uh, medical sector and in schools, and there is a lot more recognition of children's rights and there is a lot more um, opportunity for children to offer their views and to be listened to um, in order to, to try to empower them and to give them a, a voice. Um, in a, a say in, in things that happen to them. In sport, 
certainly in the UK and, and from my knowledge of um, certainly Europe and, and uh, Australia, New Zealand, there we ha we're not there yet. We haven't really, um, children's rights haven't really touched sport in the way that they have other sectors. So there is uh, there is recognition of the 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 this, the way I see it is that there's two sort of um, forms of, of two, I want to say constructive constructions of childhood within the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. The first is this idea that children are vulnerable and need protecting. And the second is this idea that children are active agents of change and, and can um, and have interesting and useful things to say and have the right and are able, are capable of having input into things that happen to them. And we're very much still stuck in the construction of children as, as vulnerable and in need of um, protection. We, we've got that. We we recognise that children are, are vulnerable from through their status and their positioning and um, and that they need protecting. But we haven't moved to the second phase of children's rights, which is about uh, recognising them as as having a, a voice and having a useful input into how. Uh, sport is run so I think there's an awful lot more that can be done within sport to encourage um, children to, to teach children about their rights and to encourage them to have more input into how sport is run and um, there are I'm aware that you know different sports do this very differently and particularly at the, at the professional level I'm aware of several sports that have things like um athlete councils or um, athlete ambassadors or um, athlete committees that feed in uh, feed information back from athletes into the running of the particular sport but that doesn't filter down to non-professional levels um, and it doesn't just because there's a committee doesn't necessarily mean uh, children or athletes rights are fully being uh, understood and respected as well so it's not a simple tick in the box of well we've got an athletes committee we're we're doing we're doing children's rights we're doing human rights there's there's much more to it than that and I don't think we um certainly in the UK I don't think think sport has done anywhere near enough on that yet yeah hearing hearing what you're saying about the the like athletes at the top that are starting to form these kind of coalitions at least I'm the, the NBA is an example that comes to mind right away about the, the players association that has started to, they literally paused play in the NBA because the players realized how much, uh, how much, how much they wanted to make sure their voice was heard regarding the black lives matter movement. Um, and I think that that's because that's a result of how much they're paid and how big the organization is. But when, like, as you mentioned, when you boil it down to the lower levels and it kind of goes down to the, the, the like youth level of sport, they don't have much of a voice or, or say in because they're not being paid millions of dollars. It's something as simple mm -hmm. as as just playing the sport. But I'm curious how, how kind of you, you touched on it a little bit, but I'm curious about your research with CPSS at Edgehill University. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what research you're kind of where, where you're focusing your area of research right now when it comes to, to children's sport. Um, yeah, I've got. Uh, oh, there's so many things. Um, I, I've got one project that I'm involved in at the moment with a colleague from Australia and a colleague from um, Canada. Um, and we're, we're, one of the things we're doing is 
we're using athletes stories the the, the focus of the project is on non-sexual abuse and educating coaches about non-sexual abuse so emotional psychological abuse and physical abuse and also neglect and we focus on those forms of abuse because in Canada, Australia and the UK there the the child protection and athlete welfare training and CPD that coaches do um, only kind of skims non-sexual abuse. So we focused on those forms of abuse and the other innovative thing that we're doing is it's a peer peer education course. So we are educating coaches to then educate other coaches in three separate sports so for example in the UK we're educating a um, a youth football coach about non-sexual abuse using athlete stories athlete narratives so they're real life experiences and examples of emotional psychological abuse and physical abuse and then that that football coach that youth football coach is going on and and educating his peers um about those forms of abuse so um this is sort of in recognition that that you know peer education is incredibly powerful or at least has the potential to be incredibly powerful um i i've done some uh coach education myself and one of the the questions that i often get is you know what what do you you know about being a coach um i worked as a coach but many many years ago for a very short space of time i'm not embedded in that culture now um i think there's there's a degree of credibility that comes from peer education that that i just i can't can't give so i think that a, a project like that has has the potential to have more impact um so i think i think that that's something that I'm really interested in doing much, much more of in terms of, of um, focusing on the peer education element and focusing on educating around uh, non-sexual abuse. Another project that I'm, I'm pl- in the planning stages of is, um, is it, it's very, it could, could go really well, could go really badly, is looking at... Um, having young athletes um, involved in designing and creating a project around athlete rights um, with the ultimate aim that they would, that the athletes themselves would devise a training program for other athletes and for coaches. So it'd be a bottom up um, education approach. And that again, doesn't, doesn't happen very often in sport or no. at all as far as I'm aware yeah so and I, I I want it's a little bit sketchy at the moment because part of the whole process is um it's not about me deciding what the athletes want to focus on it's about the athletes themselves deciding what they want to focus on so we've sort of started talking about a range of different welfare issues everything from disordered eating and eating disorders um to emotional abuse to self-harm and um, homophobia uh, was another issue and equity and inclusion and the athletes are still at the stage of deciding which way they want to go with it really and so i wanted to get the athletes themselves involved in designing a project a research project delivering it and then producing some education resources at the end so it's it's pretty fraught because 
ethics committees and um yeah yeah research committees want to know exactly what you're doing and I can't tell them just yet so it's quite it's quite <laughs> difficult um but I think you know it's really rewarding it's brilliant to see the young people and how invested they are in it um and they're far better placed than I am to know what will interest and appeal and work with other young people um and particularly you know with, with anybody in, in their sport because they're they're embedded in that sport so I think I think that's another thing that you know I'd like to do more of and I think sport could do so much more um to involve athletes in in projects like that yeah it's we started this um podcast because we wanted to look at mindset and I think what you're describing there is a mindset of empowerment but it's also a mindset of being informed like as you talked about before, if you don't acknowledge that there's a problem and you you can't talk about it and you're therefore not developing your awareness, you can't you can't heal it, you can't address it. Yeah. So this is where I mean my work on invisible injuries is is connects with you here because I think that if we taught coaches and athletes and parents understanding that they're all in this together and sport administrators, if we had them all together, understanding that we can give time in practice, every single practice to athlete welfare and wellness, we can take, you know, seven minutes and do a mindfulness exercise, do breathing, do um, a discussion around a child, right? Do a, a kind of training, a quick training on the skills necessary to be able to speak up. If you, mm. if you are being harmed and, it might be very unique to you, but that doesn't mean you can't speak up and, and have some sort of a team parent coach response that validates you and, and hones your skills at addressing abuse of other players or your own or whatever. Like, I just don't see why we can't do this. And what's really exciting to me in your approach, which is very original, is the research that I look at. So I research a lot on the adolescent brain and the adolescent's respond to other adolescents. They don't listen mm. to adults. It's part of their yeah. brain development, right? We all know that. It's like, mm. you talk to an adolescent, it's like, wah, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> you get a teenager talking to a teenager, they're mm. all ears. They all want, they want social standing. They want influence. They want to, to be part of their peer group. It's hugely influential to them. So if you want to change athlete mindset and make it healthy and engaged and empowered and get them to understand how critical inclusion is, get them to teach each other. I just think that's brilliant. I love it. I think it's going to be a really great breakthrough. It's, it's something that, that it, it astonishes me that it, it hasn't been done. It, it really surprises me that that sort of thing hasn't been done yet. Um, you know, it, certainly in terms of empirical research, um, the, the, the peer education is quite a, a common thing in other, other areas and other sectors, but in sport, it hasn't really been, um, in sport and welfare it hasn't hasn't really been done yet so I'm really hopeful that it's the start of something great uh, certainly I'm learning a lot from the young people um, and I, I certainly think it's going to be it's going to work work for them in their particular sport context in an ideal world we'd like to see that cascaded further and further but that's for the future yeah uh, I think what if I could just come in on one thing you said there about I think what what you're saying is and I think it's so important is the embedding of welfare within sort of daily practice. And I think one thing that that has happened um, 
since we started paying attention to initially it was child protection in the UK and then it sort of expanded to we use the term safeguarding which is more of a preventative approach to stopping problems from happening before they before it becomes a child protection issue and only very recently has has the um the, the discourse broadened out to more of a welfare, which doesn't isn't only about children, it's about athletes in general, and it's about a wider range of uh, abuse and, and harmful behaviours. But I think what's really important about all those things is, is not to treat the, the addressing of welfare, whether that's through education or whether that's through sort of just general checking in, that's an important part of uh, ensuring welfare and wellbeing is, checking in with people it's no good treating that as something that's an add-on that we can just stick in there every year or two when we do a coach education course or a parent induction where we talk about welfare and then we never talk about it again I think it what you're talking about there is an embedded approach where welfare becomes just a normal part of of the daily sports practice and that that has to be the way that we move this forward because it's not otherwise it risks becoming a tick box approach that we we talk about and we educate on once every couple of years whenever the later the coach licensing scheme says that a coach needs to have covered this issue and that isn't going to be good enough to changing culture yeah it, it always just makes me laugh when I see that a coach, for example, or a teacher has crossed a line, they've done, they've been identified as abusive and they're sent to a workshop. I'm like, or they, yeah. or the better one is, oh, we're gonna write a code of conduct. It's like, yeah, yeah. what? That, I mean, it's not like, it's like if I went and robbed the store, you don't have to tell me afterwards that robbing the store isn't proper conduct. That's not <laughs> gonna change my behavior or help me. What is gonna help me is, a rehabilitative approach where I'm taught day in, day out, I'm caught, Mm. you know, I make a mistake. My athletes are empowered to speak up and say, you don't want to use that language. I'm sure today. Right. Mm. And that's adults who have been trained in the model. That's highly abusive. They, they really need support, help daily practice. And they need that kind of that embedded approach themselves. And if we empowered our athletes to understand that welfare comes first and sport comes second, and all kids should be trained in this from the get-go, it, it really would make a difference. So yeah, I, I just, I love that idea of, uh, that's the greatest word for it. This embedded, like welfare is embedded. And you know, when you talk to professional athletes and you talk to Olympians, the first thing they'll tell you is that the second they got to practice, the coach would say, how are you feeling? What do you yeah. want to work on today? You know, elite yeah. athletes who are highly successful are empowered individuals. They are, mm-hmm. they are not- Yeah serving some sort of you know hierarchical abusive system Mm. and the research is very clear on that so yeah and and you know this this is um one of the reasons i've i'm keen on on changing the 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 way we talk about this towards an athlete welfare approach because there is um there is a lot going on at elite levels, a lot of really good work going on about democratizing sport and um, encouraging athlete input at that elite level. But this almost never, at least in the UK, it just doesn't trickle down to other levels of sport. Um, There aren't athlete committees. People don't ask athletes, you know, um, they, they just, 
the coaches just don't ask the athletes what do you want to do today or how are you feeling they don't they're just expected to um do as they're told you know to just keep quiet and do what the coach tells you and um it, it perhaps it is something that will trickle down as that happens more and more at the elite level but uh i, I don't think we can wait for that to happen really i mean i i, I actually just wrote a, a literature review on um how youth sports and education at a, at a kind of elementary level or just in adolescence can perpetuate racism. And it was kind of more of a, a literature review, reviewing literature basically about that uh, and research in this area of, of study. And one of the things that it talked about was was kind of asking critical questions and, and not just kind of putting uh, inclusion and diversity or whatever the, whatever the topic was as a uh, kind of like an add-on like you mentioned it's like well normalization is part of this the problem but it's also can be part of the solution so how can you normalize asking critical questions and actually embodying diversity by hiring hiring diverse coaches and having diverse athletes on your team like that's that's what's part of and what the research says is part of the most successful sport and educating environments i'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that yeah i, I absolutely completely agree um it, it is something that so um, equity and inclusion was um, included in the very first policy framework for child protection in sport, um, which was in 2001. So we have a, um, uh, a non-governmental organization, so funded by the government, but, but independent from, or funded by part of government and independent from government, that it's called the, the Child Protection in Sport Unit. And essentially it's a, a, it, it was the world's first organization that was dedicated to safeguarding and protecting children within a sports context. And one of the first things it did, it was established in 2001. One of the first things that it did was um, devised a, a policy framework for sports organizations to follow. What do they need to do in order to safeguard and protect children in sport? And this was created on the back of the conviction um, of Paul Hickson, the Olympic swimming coach who sexually abused um, female athletes, because at that time there was nothing in British sport you didn't have to have a criminal history check to be a coach you didn't have to undergo any kind of formal training you didn't have to undergo um, any there was no child protection policy you didn't have to undergo any kind of training in welfare so on the back of that they introduced this policy framework and, and part of the policy framework from the beginning was focused on equity and inclusion and initially that was focused on recognizing that certain athletes certain groups of athletes are uh, more at risk of abuse so um we still know so little about this but um disabled athletes for example we know from outside of sport that disabled children are four times more likely to suffer um abuse than non-disabled children so what little research on the prevalence of abuse in sport has been done has suggested that disabled athletes and ethnic minority athletes are at higher, um, experience higher prevalence of um, the, the different forms of abuse. And we, we can sort of theorize why that might be, but we don't actually know why. Um, so policy policy within the UK that, that any sports organisation that receives government funding has to have has to consider 
um, equity and particularly as it relates to athletes and the different um, risk categories that different athletes are in. But equally, yeah, I mean, that diversity and, and recognising and valuing diversity is, is as important when it comes to, to coaching staff as, as much as it is um, to, to athletes, I agree. And you avoid tokenism that way too, because I feel like tokenism is a very huge issue right now in that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's part of that, this holistic approach that I think is really, we've talked about it on a whole bunch of different levels and from different angles, but it is, it's this whole idea of um, equality. You know, a child is equal to an adult, an athlete is equal to a coach, a person from one cultural or ethnic background is equal to a person from another one. I mean, it's all about that, you know, the ways in which we create these constructs that allow injustice to flourish are mind blowing. Like, I mean, irony is sport is so oftentimes, not always, but it's oftentimes about community and team. You know, and we, the research is clear that if you don't have a really bonded empathic team and you don't have incredibly um, connected leadership, you don't get results. And we know this in the work world too. I mean, women are constantly not allowed in the boardroom. And yet the, all the research shows that if you have women on your board, you're a much more successful company. Yeah. So it's like, we shoot ourselves in the foot all the time as a society. It's really, it's, it's kind of amusing, but it's not funny at all, of course. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Again, it, it comes back to this, you know, embedding and connecting and yeah, the, the equity, equality approach and, and making sure that is a fundamental part of how a sports organisation is run. Um, it's not a tick box after effect. Yeah. Or tokenism. I love that word. Yeah. That's a perfect it's way not. to express it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, a, it's yeah. that do as I say and not as I do. Oh, no. Mm. If you are the coach you're the role model. You have, if you're the sport organization, you're the role model. If we want children to mirror back to us um, values that we cherish, then we've got to, we've got to teach and show and everything we do has to express them. But, you know, yeah, it takes away. In, in a, that, and that's such a, a better way of doing it than, as you said, of, than having a piece of paper that is a code of conduct or a code of ethics that essentially is, that's the aim of these things is to, to teach people appropriate conduct. You know, what are the values that we um, that we want to embody within our sports organization? That's what they're trying to do through these codes of conduct. Um, but it, it's just a it's a useless piece of paper that nobody pays any attention to. And um, that isn't the way to embed those values within your culture. You have to do it through practice and, it, you know, effort. Um, you have to yeah constantly make the effort to embed that within practice yeah that, that's a great point I'm, I'm actually realizing that just to not to talk too much about myself but I'm realizing that one in one area of my life right now which is um, I recently joined the board of directors on a on an institute of learning on Gabriel Island called the Haven and th they're kind of starting to um, shift or we're starting to shift how we approach um, inclusion and diversity as a practice and as a policy um, and policies um, and one of the things is where although it felt like tokenism to start we're starting to ask critical questions about how does what this program or this activity look for um, black indigenous or people of color. And I mean, that's, that's to do with race, but it can really go to any, any kind of area of diversity, yeah. of diversity and inclusion and, and kind of, although it seems weird, it's like, how can you ask these critical questions 
as per the situation each time. Like there's not going to be a kind of a blanket answer to, to these, these kind of situations. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on just having an individual approach to each kind of situation. Um, an individual approach Sorry. to an individual approach when it comes to, I mean, I, I, I'm realizing that when you come to one issue of diversity and inclusion, there, no two issues are the same. So I'm exactly. curious. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I would completely agree. We have to have, um, we have to consider, you know, all these issues as connected and on a repeated regular basis. Yeah. <laughs> fly <laughs> a fly um I just was saying that I feel um that is yet another like sort of opening up a really fabulous discussion but I'm conscious of your time it's almost the hour and maybe we could have you back at some point and and unpack that because I think it's a really important question that and it ties in with your work on narrative and lived experience you know, James, and what I'm hearing you're saying there is that we, we have a bad habit of making assumptions about how someone will experience something when we don't know their background. Now, if you're a First Nations and you're coming into a course and everyone in the, in the course is, is European descent, how does that make you feel? And is the work, does it even speak to you? Does it, does it acknowledge your experience? And that's going to change if you're someone with a disability and that's going to change if you're someone that's lgbtq or two-spirit or you know we and, and yet we we have this kind of one-size-fits-all model you've been describing this dr lang in sport where the coach just looks at the kids and says you're going to do this that is not at all allowing children to be unique to have different um backgrounds or or needs or concerns or crises i mean that's just that blanket approach doesn't work. We know that. So, so Jameson, maybe we can we can um, hold that really important question because I don't I don't want to let it go. But I also feel like, oh, Dr. Lang, we've had you for an hour and you're an incredibly busy. I, I think I think there there are there are people that that would uh, more authoritative than me um, that I could point you to that look at, at welfare. Particularly, I'm thinking of a, a, a colleague that I know who looks at welfare and. Um, uh, disabled children in sport um, who'd certainly be able to speak to that uh, far more authoritatively than me. Um, I know, you know a lot of her work talks about, again, this, this how you know, thinking about disabled people and inclusion and thinking about um, the welfare of disabled people as an add-on and that is, is not a helpful approach. So she may, I'm happy to put you in touch um, with, with her if it's something you want to if you're able to pursue it in future yeah that's yeah that, that would be great um i mean i feel like all these conversations are kind of pointing in, a, in different directions but they're all kind of at the center center of of shaping new conversations in sport and how can we challenge ourselves to learn as much as possible as we go in sport so uh, so thank you for for everything that you've you've brought to today's conversation thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it it's been been great Thank Amazing. you. And I've learned a lot as well. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, th th sorry. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lang, for joining us today. Um, on, on next week's episode, we're going to be joined by um, Dr. Helen Reese, who is uh, a professor at Harvard and is working with empathy in her practice. So we are going to be working that into our conversation about mindsets. Thank you for turning, tuning into today's episode of Mindset Lab, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.